0: March 13th, 1997. Thousands of people witness a craft flying south over Arizona. It's a mile across, slow moving, and completely silent. Some people say it was a solid craft. Others are not so sure. What happened that night? Was it only flares dropped above the city? Some sort of experimental airship? Or maybe something out of this world? It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast! We are your hosts, Agent Ichie and
1: Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. Follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. But first, it's time for Strange Events, Bizarre Facts, The Unbelievable Revealed, This is is the mind-boggle of the week. The Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird December 22, 1964 A miracle of technology takes flight for the first time. That same year, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 ended segregation in the United States. The Vietnam War was set off by the Gulf of Tonkin incident and China detonated their first atomic bomb. In other words, it was a long time ago. In 1957, the CIA wanted a replacement for the U-2 spy plane. They contracted with Lockheed Skunk Works to build a superior vehicle. That vehicle was the SR-71 Blackbird. Only 32 were built, a remarkably small number given how long it was in service, 33 years from 1966 to 1999. Twelve were destroyed in accidents, but not a single one was shot down by enemies. Even though it was retired 20 years ago, the SR-71 still holds the airspeed record. Its top speed was Mach 3.3 over 2,000 miles per hour, but some pilots reported going even faster. Its service ceiling was 85,000 feet or about 16 miles altitude. It flew so high and so fast that no enemy had any sort of missile or aircraft that could shoot it down. For comparison, a bullet fired from a handgun moves at about 700 miles per hour and a rifle 1700 miles per hour. The Blackbird flies much faster than a speeding bullet. Friction at these speeds is so great that the aircraft's skin heats to 600 degrees. They overcame the problem of heat with special materials and clever design. Most aircraft are built with aluminum skin, but the SR-71 was built almost entirely out of titanium. The United States didn't have enough titanium, but was able to source it from the Soviet Union using tomfoolery and shenanigans. When it was on the ground at normal temperatures, its skin was corrugated, its panels fit loosely and it leaked fuel. But when flying at high speed, everything expanded from heat, closing gaps and straightening out the skin. This is only scratching the surface. Every part of the Blackbird design was a technological marvel, a miracle of science. Does the government have newer spy planes that make the SR-71 obsolete? What would it be like to fly faster than a bullet from west coast to east coast in just over an hour? It boggles the mind. And now it's time for the show. All right. So the first thing we'll talk about is the basic timeline of events in uh, Arizona that night. Uh, So why don't we start with the first sighting? When was that?
0: The first sighting was uh, at 7.55 p.m. Uh, It was at Henderson, Nevada, southeast of Las Vegas. It was a young man that witnessed a V-shaped object. Um, I guess it was six large lights on uh, its leading edge approached uh, from Northwest and passed overhead. It was a large and I guess it sounded like rushing wind from what this uh, young gentleman claimed.
1: Yeah, that was the first sighting and it was uh, quite a bit before the sightings in Arizona. And I actually looked on a map because, you know, I don't really know where these places are. I don't live in the area. I've been Mm. there, but I'm not too familiar with the geography Mm. and Henderson is actually, it's really, really close to Las Vegas. Yeah. It's really, it's really far from like Paulden, where the next sighting starts. Yeah.
0: Most likely if you're coming from California, heading to Las Vegas, you're going to pass through Henderson on your way.
1: Yeah. I've been to Vegas a couple times and it's all just, you know, it's all just kind of like stuff. And then when you get to the strip, you forget about all the stuff on the way there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the next sighting was at 815 in Paulden, Arizona. A witness saw a cluster of five lights, four together with one trailing behind. The object didn't make any noise. The witness returned home, got some binoculars, and continued to view the object for two minutes until it left. Soon after that, the National UFO Reporting Center, law enforcement, news media, and Luke Air Force Base, uh, among others, were inundated with calls from all over the place like Chino Valley Prescott, Prescott Valley Dewey, Mm -hmm. uh. C- Cordes Junction, Wicksburg, Cave Creek, and many, many places uh, that were north and west of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, the The reports were kind of varied. They were not all the same. So some people said that there were five lights or seven. Um, some, rep- re- some people reported orange lights, yellow lights, white lights. It was not all the same thing and because the reports were... They were generally the same, but there's so many different reports that led a lot of people pretty much immediately to believe that they were witnessing several different objects, mm-hmm. not just one object.
0: Yeah. Well, but there was one uh, thing that they had in common: is is as the reports kept on coming in, it definitely seemed like the object, whatever what whatever it was that was being reported, it was, it seemed to be mo- be moving southeast towards Phoenix.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it had a definite flight trajectory that you could draw it out on a map one of the most interesting things about this case is that you can look at the witness statements and you can actually draw a line on a map where the witness statements happened by the time that because a lot of the witnesses will say i saw it at, you know 755 or i saw it at 815 and there's a definite flight path for what people saw mm-hmm. so as it traveled southeast there were more sightings so another one from prescott valley There was a family outside, and they noticed a cluster of lights in the northwest. They were red and formed a triangular pattern. The light at the nose of the object was white. They observed this for approximately two to three minutes with binoculars. It passed directly overhead of the observers, and they saw a bank to the right, and then it disappeared southeast of Prescott
0: Valley. The next one is in Dewey, and that's just south of Prescott. And uh, that was five adults and a child driving north on Highway 69. And so they witnessed a, a large cluster of lights, again, a V-shaped formation. Uh, they pulled off the road and into a grocery store parking lot. Uh, they got out of their car. And by this time, the object was directly above them, so they claim, uh, where it appeared to be hovering for several minutes.
1: After that, the next testimony in the timeline that we have is at 830. The Mr. Kelly and his wife saw it from the west end of the valley in glendale arizona they said it was a perfect v-shaped formation of seven lights with a lead light and three trailing lights on each side he pulled the car over that he was driving and got out of the vehicle to watch it they couldn't tell if it was one object or several objects flying together they watched it for several minutes and uh the these witnesses they're both ex-air force and they're well acquainted with aircraft Mm -hmm. um and they said that there were no navigation lights visible and no engine sounds that they could hear. And what the the navigation lights are like those blinking lights. And they're required on all aircraft that fly, you know, in the United States. You cannot it's illegal to fly without them, even for the military. Yes. And the whole the whole point of those uh, in a nutshell, is so you don't crash into each other. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's a really bad idea to not have your navigation lights
0: on. And they're typically pretty distinct from the ground even. Yeah. Okay, so the next report in the timeline there is the Lay Family. And that report came in at about 8.45 p.m. It was actually the first sighting from Phoenix. So they saw the lights above Prescott Valley about 65 miles away from their position when they first saw it. Um, There's five separate lights that they observed and um, over 10 minutes or so uh, they observed the lights coming closer to them and when it was close enough they, they claimed that it looked uh, somewhat in the shape of a carpenter square um, you know came right down the street that the they lived on um, they claimed it was about 150 50 feet above them traveling very slow um, you know it's it's very similar to a lot of the same claims that people were making about this this sighting when it went over their heads it went through opening in the mountains towards Phoenix and Sky Harbor Airport. The object was over Phoenix sometime between
1: 8.30 and 9 o'clock. We have some uh, witness statements from the Phoenix area. For example, a mother and her four daughters at the intersection of Indian School Road and 7th Avenue saw a chevron-shaped object approach from the Camelback Mountain in the north. It stopped directly over them and hovered for about five minutes. They say it filled about 30 to 40 degrees of the sky. That's quite a lot. It Mm -hmm. had a faint glow along its trailing edge, and you could see surface features on it. They were sure that they saw a solid object and not separate planes in a formation.
0: Yeah, that's a lot of detail to state about also, you know, to mention. Yeah. That's it's not just somebody who happened to see some lights and they were moving oddly in the sky, if that's even a word. I think it's a word. Is it? Yeah, we'll go with it.
1: A lot of witnesses in this area also reported that the object fired a white beam of light downwards. Lights on the leading edge would dim and disappear as it moved. From this area, it moved off towards the airport where it was witnessed by two air traffic controllers and several pilots, one of whom was the famous actor, Kurt Russell. He was flying his son into the area to visit his girlfriend.
0: Oh, I love the Kurt Russell connection in this whole story. Oh, isn't that the best? <laughs> oh, it adds a certain <laughs> air of believability. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that, so the, the, the object passed over Scottsdale, Glendale, and Gilbert as well. In um, Scottsdale, a, a former airplane pilot saw it make a distinct turn and the uh, the number of lights it had changed as it got closer to him, from what he claims.
1: In uh, a short time later, it was seen over Casa Grande. In this area, a family driving a station wagon saw it over their car and said it was so big that you could see it out of both windows. It blocked out the stars and was a solid object. There were more sightings in the Phoenix area over the next few hours. Some people saw strange clusters of lights, while others reported a large disk streaking overhead. Orange fireballs hovering overhead were also reported.
0: So an airman from Luke Air Force Base reported that two F-15s had been scrambled from the base to intercept one of the sighted objects. Um, Other witnesses, civilians, also reported seeing fighter jets scrambled. Later, through a Freedom of Information Act request, the Air Force admitted that they had scrambled jets, but they said it was for a training exercise. So, I mean, of course, that's going to be the immediate response that you'd expect from them. And, you know, they followed course.
1: Yeah, they seem it seems like the Air Force, no matter what, they're always going to say whatever they can say to make to muddy the waters. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, even if it's like even if the whole issue is just like a big old nothing, they're just going to say something that makes it into something. I, I don't know. Yeah, They seem like they always got to do that.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it's to be expected. You got you to say something, right? Especially a, an event that big, so, something so undeniable. When you have that many people saying something is happening, you know, you got you to gotta respond, I guess. At 10 o'clock, the second event happened. This is the so-called Flare event. This one
1: had some really good videos from different locations. Mm-hmm. And they were able to use these videos to triangulate exactly where these lights were coming from. And it turns out that it was flares dropped from A-10 Warthogs on a training mission.
0: Yeah, and this one was was probably most definitely flares, correct?
1: Yeah, that so that's generally that's the basic outline of events. So something started at about seven o'clock. It started traveling, you know, south uh southeast, and then at 10 o'clock we had the flares.
0: And a lot of people witness this because they were already out and about. Um, people were already out and about looking for the hell Bob comet. If anybody's, yeah. if anybody's familiar with that, you know, it's, it's probably one of the most, uh, would you say it's one of the most ex- spectacular comets we'd probably see in our lifetime?
1: Oh yeah. Without a doubt. I remember um, I saw a comet when I was a kid that I thought was pretty cool, but it was nothing compared to the hell Bob comet. You could see it with your naked eye and it was visible for 18 months And that's twice as long as the previous record holder, which is the Great Comet of 1811.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Its closest approach to Earth was on March 22nd, just a few days after the Phoenix sightings. It had two tails that were clearly visible that stretched 45 degrees across the sky. And it was so bright that you could see it even before the sun was done setting. So before the night was, you know, before the sky was completely dark, you could see it. Mm-hmm. I actually saw this comet when I was out in the desert in the middle of nowhere near Palm Springs. Oh, really? And and it was pretty amazing. It was... you words. If you didn't see it, words cannot describe. And this kind of celestial event doesn't happen that often. Uh-huh. And I'm pretty confident that, you know, to the end of my days, as long as my life as I might live, I'm never going to see something as spectacular looking as this comet. Mm-hmm. That's just how amazing looking it was. Google it. There's pictures and it looked that amazing in person. It looked, it
0: looked really amazing. I mean, March in 1997 was a, a crazy month just to begin with. I mean, there was a bunch of stuff that happened in that month. Uh, obviously another famous event related to this was uh, the heaven's gate Colt, where they committed suicide to reach uh, the UFO hiding behind the near hell Bob So the second event, which was
1: the flares, there's really not a whole lot of controversy about this one. It's, been pretty well proven that it was flares a, a couple of people analyzed the videos like jim T- Delatesso, mm-hmm. uh lenny rudin and bruce Maccabee Oh, Lenny, there have all they all analyzed the videos jim Delatesso actually analyzed it and said that it wasn't flares but uh the other guys lenny rudin bruce Maccabee and many others have all analyzed the videos and determined without without any controversy that it's pretty much flares And you can test this for yourself. Just go on YouTube and Google aerial flare. And it looks pretty much exactly the same as the videos of the Arizona flares.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: And one of the things that they did was they superimposed a picture, a daytime picture of the mountain range over the video of the flares. Because at nighttime, you cannot see the mountains. But when you put the picture of the mountain against the video of the flares, the flares disappear behind the mountains.
0: Okay, so there's an Arizona National Guard public information officer captain named Elaine Benz. And um, Elaine said that the flares were dropped around 10 p.m. over the North Tactical Range, uh, 30 miles southeast of Phoenix, at an altitude of 15,000 feet, which is uh, unusually high for this sort of thing. Uh, dropping at, at that altitude uh, it wouldn't make sense because th- these flares are are designed for to increase your sight. Right, increase your line of vision, provide provide more light for troops on the ground. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. From what I could find, they use these flares to illuminate the ground mm-hmm. and they usually drop them at like say 6,000 feet and then they fall from there. Mm-hmm. But when you drop them at like 15,000 feet is really, really high up in the air. That's like three miles. Yeah, yeah. So it's kind of weird that they drop them up there. At first, the military denied any knowledge of anything at all, but eventually they admitted that it was the military dropping the flares. The military training exercise was called Operation Snowbird. The flare model was supposed to be LUU 2, and it's supposed to be for illuminating ground targets. But a lot of people say that this is suspicious because they don't drop these flares at 15,000 feet. And you have to drop them that high. Or actually, Bruce McAbee said it was 17,000 feet, but whatever. Mm -hmm. In order to see the flares over the mountains, they had to be dropped at a very high altitude. Mm -hmm. They never did this before, and they never did it since. Only on this one night do they drop the flares at this high of an altitude. And they somehow just coincidentally dropped the flares in a V formation, Mm-hmm. So a lot of people think this is highly suspicious, yeah. and think that they were only dropping the flares to cover up the event of the sightings earlier in the evening.
0: The the flares uh, were supposed to have been dropped by a, a Maryland National Guard unit, right? That was flying some A tens. Is that correct? They'd... Yeah, and that's another weird thing. It wasn't it wasn't a federal
1: like the it wasn't like the Air Force or anything, and yeah. it wasn't even in Arizona. It was a Maryland National Guard unit.
0: And then they also they gave, dropped the flares. They gave the excuse that they weren't allowed to land with these extra flares, right? So once the flares were loaded, uh, you can't line with them because they're extra flares, right? So, of course, you got to jettison them before you land because it must be unsafe. I and mean, that sounds pretty reasonable to me. I, I don't know nothing about aviation. I've never flown a plane, you know. But yeah, that sounds reasonable. What do you think? Well...
1: So that's just another little piece of the the puzzle to me that sounds implausible because they have somebody on the runway or where in the hangar actually has to physically load these flares onto the airplane. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't happen in a vacuum. Somebody order. this is the military. These people are not just, you know, farting around. You know, let's just put some flares on this airplane. Somebody tells them, put these flares on this airplane and they do it because they're ordered to do it. Yeah. For a specific reason. Somebody had to plan ahead of time to load these airplanes up with flares and they know ahead of time that they're not allowed to land with flares at this place. So why would they put the flares on there ahead of time if they know ahead of time that they're not allowed to land with the flares on there? It just doesn't make any sense. This particular explanation, Mm -hmm. it just kind of stinks of something that they thought of the last minute to try to cover up why the flares were dropped at such a high altitude, you know, because mm. uh, uh we had to let them off because they couldn't land with them. So, you, think Kinda, you know,
0: you think their excuse is a bit lazy?
1: Yeah, I mean, it just I don't know. Like, I'm not in the Air Force. I've never been in the Air Force, but it just seems I don't think that's how things work. I think that this stuff doesn't happen in a vacuum. They don't just randomly assign, okay, this guy's got eight flares. We're going to give this guy two flares, and this guy's going to get 15 flares. Everything they do is deliberate and planned out. They don't just fly out and randomly launch flares around. It's all planned out.
0: Well, it does kind of sound like a good time to me.
1: Well, yeah, it sounds like a good time, but... The military's not known for having good
0: times. I mean, you you like setting off fireworks, right? I mean, those, those are you, know, you can consider those fireworks, I suppose. Especially if you're already up in the air too. That sounds like a, a ball, if you ask me. Those those
1: are the good fireworks.
0: <laughs> Better than those ones you're gonna get at the freaking black cast stand. Tell you that much. So
1: next, let's talk about the first event in a little more detail. the The first event is really interesting because. Uh there was a lot of different accounts of different things, so a lot of the eyewitnesses don't agree on everything, but there's a lot of stuff they do have in common. So a lot of them report that there was a huge object, that it was solid and it blocked out the stars. It was definitely a solid craft. Uh the but some people also said that it was translucent, so when it passed in front of a bright object like a star or the moon. It would change the color of the moon or stars, or it would look kind of wavy like water, like it was, you know, the the moon was being seen through water or something. And a lot of people, pretty much everybody said it was slow moving.
0: I think one of the amazing stories that relates to this whole event is actually the story of a city councilwoman. So... You know, a great many witnesses uh, initially at at first, uh, their statements were, you know, they weren't listened to, you know, um, obviously you can find many of these statements now online. But, you know, no one would listen to these witnesses uh, except Phoenix City Councilwoman Frances Barwood. And she actually personally interviewed over 700 witnesses. And just think about that. Um, I actually personally have known quite a few government employees and I'm not trying to speak, speak ill of anybody in particular, really, but... There, there is a little bit of fat around the edges in, in some of these positions and, and just like anybody anywhere I mean there's, there's, there's bad people no matter what sector of, of the world you're going to or whatever sector of civilization you're going you're talking about. but you know most government employees that I, I've met that would be in a situation like that where they're faced with that much work uh, would would possibly shy away from some of it at least you know they, they may not want to go that hard in the paint. You know what I mean? So we're 700 witnesses. That's a lot of freaking interviews right there.
1: Yeah. I actually heard this lady interviewed on Open Minds Radio with Alejandra Rojas. Mm-hmm. And she said that it took her, a, I forget the a weeks or months or whatever. So these people all called and left messages, voicemails, basically. And she called them all back. She called mm-hmm. all of them back, except for the ones that she couldn't get her, you know. Intentuals. Some of them left a voice. Her voicemail box got completely filled up. And then they started leaving messages for other people at the city because they, they had heard that she was actually listening to people. So they had mm-hmm. all started calling her. So like the, the people that called the mayor, she didn't find out about those people, but everybody she could find out about, uh, she called them back, which is, you know, it's really quite impressive and, you know, hats off to her because that's like, you're saying, man, there's, I don't think there's really that many people in the entire country who would go through that kind of an effort.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. There's,
1: There's a famous video of her online where she's, she brings up this UFO event in a council meeting Mm -hmm. and she just, it's like silence, like crickets. Everybody looks at her like she's crazy and then they just move on to something else. Like they just completely ignore her pretty much. Mm -hmm. And you can listen to her in the interview and she's, she's not like a UFO nut or anything, but she was just doing her job. She felt that she had a duty to represent you know, her taxpayers that she was representing in the city. Mm-hmm. And that's why she was doing it. Not because she was interested in UFOs, but yeah. because people were upset and they were asking her to look into it. And that's pretty much all there was to it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a pretty genuine person. The story, her what she says is really interesting.
1: There's not very many accounts of people who were in government and then they retire and then they talk about some of the inner workings mm-hmm. that, you know, they generally don't talk about that stuff. But, on this interview, she actually talks about this stuff. And she says stuff like the um that the Mayor's assistant told her that she shouldn't talk about it because the Mayor didn't or didn't want her to. Mm-hmm. And she started getting uh, uninvited from meetings. Like she would normally go to certain meetings that, you know, they would tell her that it was at a time and place. And they just wouldn't call her. any they stopped calling her for these meetings. Giving her the cold shoulder, huh? Yeah. And she was the only person in government willing to look into this.
0: So she talked to hundreds of people. And uh, they all described pretty much the same object. It, it was really big, completely silent, mostly boomerang-shaped or V-shaped is, is what they're describing. You know, most of the witnesses had people with them. Uh, many, many of them were outside already, to, like we had mentioned, to, to watch the Hill Bob comet. You know, um, many reported sensing the object before seeing it, which is actually pretty, pretty interesting, you know, because a lot of these people may have been l- watching TV or something like that. There's reports of people that were in, inside their living room and they happened to look outside because they had a feeling about something being there. You yeah. Know?
1: And the most interesting thing to me about that is that we're talking about many, many people that reported this independently of each other so mm-hmm. hundreds of people that they, they didn't talk to each other it's not like they all got together at a rally and came up with a story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. they all independently reported that they sensed the object before they saw it which oh, yeah. is
0: yeah. well the whole the, the way the way a lot of the the event just came together the the way the the whole timeline played out you know uh, you know another another thing that people described is it was trans translucent Uh, but dark translucent you know most of them forgot about it until they saw an article you know and then that's i think that's another important little tidbit of the storyline too because i think that kind of speaks towards uh spontaneity like you were you were saying you know yeah that's that's one of the weirdest
1: things about it and actually there's an interview with kurt russell and uh i think it's chris pratt is that his name yeah and uh, uh,
0: guardians of the galaxy right
1: yeah, they're yeah. they're doing a promo spot for Guardians of the Galaxy, two, And Kurt Russell's talking about this. And he says in that interview that he witnessed the UFO, but he completely forgot about it until he saw his wife, Goldie Hawn, watching a TV special two years later mm-hmm. about the Phoenix Lights, and then it just came back to him. But a lot of witnesses reported that exact same thing, that they saw it, mm-hmm. and then they completely forgot about it. Until they saw it in the news or something like that, or they heard somebody else talking about it, mm-hmm. and that's really strange to me because if you saw a craft that you would describe as a mile wide flying overhead at a hundred feet, you would not forget that. You would never forget that. Oh, Nobody no. will yeah. ever forget that.
0: No, I agree with that. You know, and you know, going back to a uh, uh, city councilwoman, Frances Barwood. You know, um, like I had said, I I think that her actions alone kind of prove her to be a genuine person. And me personally, if I hear somebody say, someone like this say something, I'm going to give their words a little bit more consideration. I'm going to lean towards believing them more so than than maybe some other people, especially some other people in uh, government positions. That's for certain, you know, because she's already stated through actions. And you know, that old saying, actions speak louder than words, right? Well, I mean, yeah. there's, a, there's a reason why we've all heard it so many thousands of times as we we're growing up. Well, it's very true, right? Fife
1: Symington, the governor at the time, doesn't have any sense of humor at all. Yeah. And the alien press conference that he pulled that pissed off a lot of people was completely out of character for this guy mm-hmm. to do. And she thinks that he was put up to it by somebody else. That um, So in, I looked it up. I, we talked about it, but I looked it up, the specifics mm-hmm. in 1997. So after this happened in 97, he was convicted of um, some kind of bank fraud charges. I didn't look at specifically what those charges were, Mm. but the charges were overturned. Later on, he was pardoned by Clinton, like in like 2001 or something. So a couple of years later. Mm, So some she didn't say these details, but these details back up what she's saying. It looks like somebody behind the scenes is kind of protecting him. You know what I mean? And that's kind of like what she was getting
0: at. Yeah, it makes sense, though. Yeah. I mean, just just by what actually happened, how it played out, he was pardoned of uh, some serious crimes. I mean, it's not like that doesn't happen often, too often in, in government in general, but it is a little suspicious given what, you know, he had gone through.
1: Yeah, oh, for sure. Another interesting that, thing that all the witnesses claimed was that they all felt very calm. If you read a lot of UFO reports, quite a few people will feel frightened or threatened They'll try to run away, but pretty much across the board, people who saw this thing felt very calm. They didn't feel panicked. They didn't feel afraid. They just felt very calm, and then they forgot about it, and that was it, they, You know, mm-hmm. which is kind of unusual for UFO events. I don't know what to make of that, but again, a lot of people independently reported the exact this exact same thing, so if it was one or two people, for me, it would be hard to believe But when you have literally thousands of people all saying the exact same thing, that they felt
0: calm, maybe there's a little more to that. There's a reason for it. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. When you have a totality of evidence staring you right in the face, you got to give it some... Consideration.
1: So one of the really interesting things she said in the interview was that she's she was suggesting that the federal government didn't really have any control over what was happening. Mm-hmm. She didn't say as much, but she was really suggesting that it wasn't the federal government and kind of hinting without saying it out loud. But she was really... Kind of hinting that her idea was that it was aliens. That's what I got out of the interview, but she never said that. You kind of have to go listen to it for yourself. But uh, if you listen to it, I don't think there's any other way you could really interpret it. Mm -hmm. She's a politician, so you can't really nail her down and say, oh, you said it was aliens, because she never said that. Yeah. But she definitely hinted it.
0: And also, (laughs) if she wants to be taken seriously, and she's gone through this experience of being not taken seriously, and also, like you said, not being invited to meetings and stuff, too, afterwards... You know, she right. she can't just come right out and say, you know, aliens, this aliens that, you know, you know, she probably will either lose her job or be ousted from meetings or anything like that. Uh, next, I want to read some witness statements.
1: Uh, a lot of shows that talk about the Phoenix lights, they don't read firsthand statements. And I think it's important to hear what these people experienced firsthand, because a lot of the skeptics will cherry pick. Only the statements that support a formation of aircraft being responsible for all these sightings. But when you really get down to it and start reading these statements from witnesses that saw a large craft, there are hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of these statements that you can find. The more you read, the harder it becomes to believe that a couple of Cessnas or whatever it was caused these sightings. I wanted to read some of these firsthand statements just just to hear that, because that's more powerful than anything we can say about them. One of the things I want to do is kind of counteract what the news media... So what they did was they would take these statements and play them alongside videos of the flares, whether it was intentional or whether they were just trying to make the event more watchable or more exciting for their audience. Either way, the end result was that they conflated the first and second events so that what happened was the first event was kind of debunked once the second event was proven to be flares. Yeah. So it kind of diffused the whole thing. But if you read these witness statements, there's no way it was flares. There's no way it was just a single formation of airplanes. You could say if you wanted to that thousands of people, for whatever reason, all in the same day decided to all lie about the exact same object. They're just making it up or whatever but it's to me it's more ridiculous to say that these people saw a formation of airplanes flying around than to say i don't know like there's an interdimensional craft or aliens or whatever you want to come up with to explain it but it's just completely ridiculous
0: the more of these you read totality of it is big it's hard to very hard to deny Yeah. All right. So do you want to start by uh, reading the first one, Agent ETA? Sure. Why not? So uh, the first witness testimony we have is um, a fellow that says, uh, you know, he was one of hundreds of eyewitnesses of a giant V-shaped craft that that flew silently over his head from uh, north to south um, prior to the second sighting of what most people are familiar with. Uh, The V-shaped craft was was so large uh, and flew directly over his head. Um, that he could barely have, you know, cover its diameter with, with his own arms and hands outstretched completely, you know, it blackened the sky out uh, where it flew above them. And I think that's a very important fact that you, you need to pick up on also is because there's so many people that actually stated specifically that it was blocking out starlight. And, you know, if it was just a flare, uh, it wouldn't have that much mass to, to block out, I mean, I'm sure through light refraction or, you know, whatever, you know, science uh, could be involved with with flares and and the heat coming off of a flare, maybe even maybe some some things could happen with with, uh, the naked eye and make it look a little weird. But when you have so many people saying that there was large swaths of area that were being blocked out, I mean, I think you got to listen to that. Yeah, there's. Some very
1: dubious explanations that the skeptics offer. One of them is that if you so if you have a very bright light, Mm -hmm. it masks lighter lights. So that's why you can't see stars during the day, for example. They're Mm -hmm. obviously still there. It's just that the sky is much, much brighter than them. So you can't see them. Right. Mm -hmm. So they say that that's why it looked like a solid craft was because the lights were brighter than the stars and it made you think that it was. You know, a carpenter's square-shaped object, but it wasn't mm-hmm. really. And the other explanation for like the weight, you know, how people report that it was wavy and stuff. Mm-hmm. The uh, the skeptics say that that was because the aircrafts have you know fumes, like yeah. exhaust, basically, and the uh, exhaust. And to be but in it,
0: all fairness, that actually kind of that point right there actually kind of makes some sense. But it
1: it doesn't make sense if you. Put it next to the witness statements. How the lights were that far apart? Mm. Oh, what yeah. kind of yeah, true enough. what kind of airplane puts out so much exhaust that it can make everything look distorted for that wide of an area? You know what yeah. I mean?
0: Yeah, true enough. Yeah.
1: And like, have you you've seen like a, a jumbo jet over your head at at altitude thirty thousand feet? Thirty thousand feet, you can still hear it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> They're about never that. silent. They're so loud. Okay, so next up, we have a statement from Mike Fortson, who is one of the foremost witnesses of this event. He's been on various documentaries and whatnot. You may have seen him before. So his witness statement is, I awoke from a brief nap in my recliner and leaned over to tell my wife that I was going to bed. I glanced to the clock on the television. It was 8.30 p.m. As I walked down the hallway to the master bedroom, I noticed the bedroom window was open. The weather was most pleasant. This March 13th evening, temperature 75 degrees, clear and no wind. Typical Arizona spring evening. As I pulled the window closed, my eyes were attracted to the three huge bright white lights angled down and very low to the ground. Plane crash, I thought. These lights were way too low and angled in a way nothing I know of could pull out of. I ran down the hallway, grabbed my glasses off the bar, and yelled to my wife of twenty-five years, get outside right now. Without hesitation, she followed me out the back Arcadia door to the edge of our patio. I have timed this since, and it took about eight to ten seconds. Standing at the edge of our patio, facing west and looking north, confusion struck me. For there was no plane crash, but coming from the north and heading south was one single structure that looked like a giant boomerang. The description of boomerang, chevron, and V shaped object all apply. This object stuck out like a sore thumb in the evening sky due to the fact that we were looking north toward the Phoenix metro area and the city lights gave us a grey background in which to view this huge black shape. It was so low to the surface, we could not believe it. I remember saying, What the hell is that? The huge V-shaped craft was moving slowly to the south. At this point, still northwest of us, we both saw a 737 in landing approach pass over the object. The plane was coming in from the west, heading east. The V-shaped craft was heading south from the north. As the 737 passed over the V-shaped object, I said, Did you see that? Why didn't the plane get the hell out of there? But it didn't. The pilot nor the plane's computers saw nothing. Just like the radars at Sky Harbor and Luke Air Force Base, nothing was detected. I would like to explain more on this incident, We live approximately 23 miles east of Sky Harbor in Phoenix. Planes coming in to land most of the time will come by us, bank to the north, proceed for approximately 10 to 12 miles, bank left again, and land at Sky Harbor. This is normal landing. I have talked to airline pilots, tower operators, and investigators about the altitude of planes coming in to land at the Sky Harbor at the point of the first bank north where we live. The altitude, 1,200 feet. The massive V-shaped craft we saw was under 1,200 feet altitude. The huge V-shaped craft proceeded south. It was almost in front of us when my eyes followed the left wing to its end. We lived half a mile south of Chandler Boulevard. The end of the wing was well past that and at least halfway to Ray Road, 1.5 miles north. I remember saying to my wife, that thing is a mile long. As it passed in front of us, all we could see is the left wing. That's how long it was. At arm's length, the object was at least 30 inches long. I reported it was approximately one and a half miles west of us going down Alma School Road. But the closest part of the huge V, the end of the left wing, was much closer. Maybe within half a mile. One thing I remember the most is how this craft floated approximately 30 to 40 miles an hour. There was no visual means of propulsion and absolutely no noise. The altitude and speed of the craft never changed. On March 13, 1997, at approximately 8.31pm Mountain Standard Time, there was a bright bottom quarter moon setting in the western horizon. I said to the wife, we're going to get more detail, look, it's going right into the light of the moon. But instead of greater detail of this huge V-shaped craft, what we saw still amazes us. As the front of the V-shaped craft entered the light of the moon, this black chevron-shaped object became translucent in bright light. We could still see the bottom quarter moon through the object, but instead of bright white, it was a dingy yellow. As the V-shaped craft exited the bright moon, it became a solid black object again we watched as the entire craft passed through this. Seeing a solid object going into and coming out of was black, but as the craft passed between us and the bright white moon, it was translucent. Something about bright objects. Witnesses who had this pass over their heads claim as the craft passed between bright stars, it was like looking through water. By the time the end was passing through the light of the moon, the front of the craft was disappearing into the night sky to our south. It never changed course, speed, or altitude, just faded off into the night sky to the south of us. During the whole sighting, we never moved our feet. We never considered giving, getting a camera. We never thought of yelling for a neighbor. There was no question in our minds that what we saw was not of this earth. Our total sighting was about 1 minute and 45 seconds. My response to no videos of the 8 o'clock craft is that first it was 1977 and no cell cameras with picture or video capabilities. Secondly, rarely would one leave such an awesome sighting of something that is not supposed to exist and go fetch a camera or recording device. We told each other to not even blink. Why would anyone risk precious observation time getting a camera? And if so, would the batteries be fresh and charged? Uh, Lastly, Mike says that, I strongly believe it was not of this Earth, because they changed shape from V-shape into a white ball of light and vanished. It was deemed possibly interdimensional, also because of the massive size, ability to pass at low speed, ability to do so at low altitude with no noise whatsoever.
0: So another witness when speaking about the event says... I remember the governor made his speech regarding this event because too many people were demanding answers and he marched out that alien costume clad guy as a joke. I was pissed. How dare he make light of this? He later apologized and said he wanted to lighten up the mood because people were freaking out. Freaking out? I thought they were flares. On the night in question, I was walking east from my friend Joey's house to my house about 8 to 10 homes away on the same street. I don't know who looked up or why, but I did witness the lights in the V-shaped pattern. I quickly ran inside my home to tell my mother to come out to check out the UFO, but she was talking to my aunt and blew me off. I was in the 7th grade. It was a school night, I believe, and if it wasn't, my curfew was 9pm. To me, this was an extraordinary event that I was fortunate enough to experience. My feeling regarding the UFO I witnessed is in the realm of this earth. I never believed it was an ET UFO. The theory that starts closest to the truth for me is that the UFO was using the I-17 as a guide. I witnessed this from approximately 35th Avenue in Union Hills, which straddles the I-17 and is north of Phoenix. During this time, there was little development past Beardsley.
1: Our next witness is a flight instructor from Emory Riddle. He and a student were flying over Chino Valley when it appeared that all the city and area lights went out. After realizing the lights had not gone out, but were being blocked by what they described as a gigantic black chevron-shaped craft that was massive in size and at least a mile long, they literally feared for their lives as they flew above the massive unknown object. However, it quietly passed on its way south towards Phoenix.
0: Our next witness states that uh, me and my mother witnessed the flying V over our home east of Kingman, Arizona. March 13th, 1997, around 7.15 p.m. We were heading into town to find my brother. We had just exited our home. As we were getting into my truck, I noticed an orange light in the sky coming at us from the west. As I watched the strange light, it turned blood red coming at us. As I was pulling out of our driveway, it was coming over us, and we could see five blue-white lights in a V on the bottom of the craft. It was so weird I stopped and got out of the truck to see it, and as it came over us, it was completely silent no sound at all. When it was directly overhead, I couldn't see the lights anymore unless I looked to the side of the craft. If I looked directly at the lights, it was like they were hidden. The craft flew over us, headed east towards Flagstaff, Arizona. I immediately called my good friend to ask if he had saw it flying over Keene earlier, and he had not. He actually didn't believe I had saw anything until the reports were in the news the next day. And it was reported as being seen over Paulden, Arizona, which was due east of our location when we observed it. We never came forward as it seemed we wouldn't have been taken seriously, especially after seeing our governor, Fife Symington make fun of people that had reported it.
1: I was working that Thursday night, March 13th, 1997, and was right in the middle of trying to finish the job I was working on before our break time at 9pm, which was about half an hour away. All of a sudden, I had a strong urge to stop what I was working on, which I tried to fight. This went from an urge to a command, and I couldn't fight it. As I turned, I said out loud, What?! even though I was working alone. As I stood up and turned 180 degrees to look toward Phoenix, I dropped my tools. And to my astonishment, when I focused on what was appearing in front of me, there were three balls of light of a type and color I will never forget. It was like watching a cartoon as the orbs were lit from within. They were an orange color, like fire with red and yellow churning inside each one. Once all seven were lit up, one at a time, north to south, they just hung there about 500 feet above the southeastern part of the airport and river bottom. One orb kept getting out of line and zip around and then get back in line again. Then they all started moving and went from the semicircle they had been in for 4 or 5 minutes. They then made a V-shape and started to turn southeast in my direction. As the pointed front part of this V swung around, the second it was directed at me, I was hit with something that I can only explain as being scanned. It instantly knew me and everything about me that second. I was so scared that my fight or flight clicked in and I turned and started running away. I didn't get far before I realized that this thing was about eight or nine miles away. I turned back and my fears instantly left as I watched the V make an elegant bank turn, performing a U-turn over the Point South Mountain and glided silently due west parallel to the South Mountain Range until it got to the end of it, turning left and going behind the range over Rainbow Valley South towards Tucson.
0: I not only witnessed the March 13, 1997 mass sighting from the time the formation of orange orbs were hovering just to the southeast of Sky Harbor at about the same altitude as the transmission towers on South Mountain. I could see the lights from the city in the background, so I could tell it was not a solid object, but the individual vessels that resembled nine round, orange, and red-flowing lava lamps floating in formation silently and gracefully... As it paralleled the South Mountain due west. Then it turned south as it went behind the range, as I lost sight of it orb by orb as it turned south towards Tucson. Time span of my sighting was around 15 to 20 minutes. Time was about 8 30 until about 8 50 p.m. I was working as every Eve for 18 years in Tempe, Arizona, South Tempe, Arizona. Although they were never closer to me than eight miles, when they started moving towards me, I turned to run, but they were only making a U-turn, so I calmed down and continued watching. I felt that they knew I was watching, and they knew me. One of the interesting
1: things about a lot of these sightings is, if you see an airplane in the sky, you're like, that's just an airplane, but Mm -hmm. a lot of these people, like, so I just kind of picked some random descriptions here. So many of the ones I read, they all felt that the object they were looking at knew something about them. You know what I mean? Like, Mm
0: -hmm. Like they felt some kind of consciousness to it or some kind kind of awareness, some kind of connection.
1: It's just, it's the thing is, like, these are all people who didn't know each other, and so many people describe this, it's hard to dismiss it. But at the same time, Mm -hmm. I can't really put a finger on what that means. Okay, so, um, This particular night, we left the house at almost exactly 8.30 p.m. I'm certain of the time because we had just finished watching the Jerry Seinfeld comedy which began at 8 o'clock, and we left immediately thereafter for my daughter's home several blocks away. We drove northwest on 43rd place toward South Mountain Park, which was very near to our home. About one block from home, my husband noticed an unusual formation of lights just coming into view from above South Mountain directly in front of us. He pulled over to the curb and got out to observe, as did I. What we saw was a huge V-shaped formation of lights almost above us, moving silently and slowly towards the east. We observed the lights moving past us very slowly. They then appeared to bank over as would an airplane and headed in the direction of Tucson, C-Map parallel to I-10, our neighbors who were out in their open garage ran out to observe the very same thing we are describing here. To the west in the night sky, quite visible that night, was the Hale bop comet. The v-shaped object was not only silent, appearing huge, but as we could not see the stars as it passed in front of them, it leads us to believe that it was a solid object.
0: All right, so next one. I believe it to be nearly 8.15 p.m. when I walked outside, anticipating the arrival of my friend from school. Movement caught my peripheral vision, causing me to look up. What I noticed surprised me a great deal. Over my head, traveling quite slowly at, I'd estimate, about 20 miles per hour, was a very large, seemingly solid V-shaped object, marked at intervals by slightly yellowish-whitish round lights. I was so taken aback by this silent figure, I stared very intently and noticed that in between these lights, it was not possible to see stars, which to me, indicated that the lights were a part of some craft, which I had never seen before. It was a very clear night, and stars were very visible in other parts of the skies. I was so surprised, I turned around and walked back through the, our courtyard to get my father who I was certain could confirm what I was seeing. I walked in and explained to him what I had saw and that he needed to come outside to see himself. But by the time we both arrived back in the courtyard, the lights were much farther away and we couldn't examine it further. My friend later arrived and stated that he too had seen the strange formation of lights and watched it disappear on the horizon to the south, which had been the direction it was traveling when I'd stood beneath it. I estimate that it was maybe 800 to 1,000 feet above me. But shockingly silent, I could hear no motor, no propulsion, of, no propulsion of any kind while standing beneath it, as it made its trek from north to south over me.
1: At approximately 8.45 p.m., I went to the front yard of my Phoenix home, which is located in the southern part of the city, an area called Ahwataki. I looked to the east and saw a very strange-looking craft flying very slowly in the sky. It was moving away, I assume, as it was getting smaller. It was very visible against the superstition mountains. It moved slowly from north to south and back again in what appeared to be a rick-rack pattern. It was quite large, I agree with the others who put their arm up and measured it with a closed fist. It appeared triangular in shape. I related it to a squashed pyramid. I saw three very bright white lights one in each corner and one at the top of the pyramid. In the center was a very, very bright pulsating red light, bigger in circumference than the three white lights. I would describe the white lights as three powerful strobe lights. We watched the object for several minutes and we were amazed that something that large could move so gracefully and so silently. We could hear no sound at all, it gradually faded into the southeast sky.
0: I saw the object at the Mesa Community College, where I am a student. The time was approximately 8.30 to 8.50 pm, I didn't check the time until later, so this is an estimate. And I was walking west, I was looking at the constellation Orion when I noticed a constellation-like triangular cluster of five dim amber lights northwest opposite Orion. I began to observe this cluster of lights and quickly realized that they were slowly moving northwest to southwest, and that they were part of a triangular-shaped object. There was light in each corner and two more near the front, which formed a smaller triangle. I heard no noise. I asked another person who was reading the school paper if he saw it, And he said he did and noted that they were moving. The object appeared to be much larger than any aircraft and did not appear to be one. Also, I noted that there were at least three aircraft in the sky at the time, two north and one south, although not close to the object. I observed it for at least two to three minutes until it was no longer visible in the the south to southwest. It appeared that the lights dimmed, but it may have been obscured by the clouds. It moved in a slightly curved, almost straight path.
1: On March 13th, 1997, I decided to walk my small dog in the neighborhood. It was a nice evening. I walked northeast, then back southwest, back toward my home. I was at the corner of Ramuda and the block behind my home when I somehow became aware of many lights coming toward me very slowly and deliberately. They were red in color and not too bright, but low very low to the ground, coming right towards me. At first, I thought, oh, it's helicopters from the Air Force Base or something. The lights were in a V-shape, but a very wide or fat V. I saw four lights that seemed to be evenly apart and one lagged behind, uneven compared to the rest. As they got closer still, I was acutely aware that this wasn't just helicopters, Because they were close, low, and no sound could be heard from them at all. I just stood there, in total awe. Even the dogs seemed to be aware of this object, or objects. The object changed altitude right in front of me. I tried to see stars through the middle of the lights, but saw none. As the object moved away, it turned toward the west from coming south and west. As the object changed direction, I could only see three lights, still red in color. It also changed speed. I live in North Phoenix in a subdivision called Tatum Highlands, closest crossroads being Tatum and Jomax. Many of my neighbors walk dogs late at night. However, I seem to have been out alone this particular night. There were three folks I yelled at immediately after the object moved away from me, but they didn't seem to understand what I was saying.
0: My wife and I were standing out front while she was smoking. We always look in the sky when we are outside at night, and I just went in the house and sat down at the computer. I didn't even touch the keyboard when she was hysterically yelling for me to come outside. I ran outside as quickly as I could because I thought there was something happening to her. She pointed into the sky and told me to look at those lights. It was clearly obvious that it was a craft of some sort. We could see the area between the lights, which had a triangular shape, was solid and was a different shade, darker, of black than the night sky. It moved towards Sky Harbor Airport as it moved away from us. It made no noise as it went by. We are in the flight path of Sky Harbor and look at the planes as they go over, about 5,000 feet. In comparison, you could have lined three to four jet airliners end to end and hung them underneath this thing.
1: I was in Tempe with a bunch of my friends when we saw a group of about five to seven lights in the sky. They seemed to stay in the same place. This was that recent Arizona sighting. But I don't get why no one mentions the stuff the planes were shooting in the air. They looked like missiles. But they didn't go in one direction. They would descend, go left, go right, go back up, go down again, and disappear. To me, what I thought it was, was the military testing missiles. I got seven friends who all saw the same thing. The lights then flew south and disappeared.
0: I was 17 years old, and I was teaching Pop Warner Cheer Squad on a football field out in Goodyear. There were also other Pop Warner Cheer and football teams there practicing. I don't remember the exact time, but it was between 8.30 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., from what I remember. There were at least 500 people there, easily. Parents, coaches, and kids. I noticed that in the field next to us, there were several bright lights, almost like street lights. I didn't pay much attention to them because they weren't moving, and it wasn't interesting. I did get interested, though, when they started floating towards the field where all of us were practicing. Everyone just seemed to stop and look up. It couldn't have been more than 200 to 300 feet above us. We couldn't see anything. It was just dark like the night sky. We just saw that the lights moved together in perfect formation and floated right over us until it faded off, almost like it disappeared. I didn't really pay attention to its shape because it was so large in the circumference and so close to us. The lights were not too close together, but close enough together that we could see that it was an object. It also made no sound at all.
1: On the evening of March 13th, 1997, my son and I were driving on I-10, where it flows due east through Phoenix, Arizona. The time was approximately 8.30 p.m., I noticed what I initially thought was a long line of commercial aircraft approaching Sky Harbor International Airport from the north preparing for a westerly landing. I remember thinking it odd that they all appeared to be at the same elevation and none were changing position. As we continued on I-10 turns south heading toward Casa Grande and Tucson. At that time I lost sight and interest in the lights. We left I-10 at the Riggs Road exit and headed east toward my son's home. I again noticed that the lights were still in the same type of pattern and at the same altitude. They also appeared to be much closer. We arrived at my son's home five minutes later and I went outside to check on the lights while the rest of the family ate dinner. By this time it was clear that the lights were not separate lights but actually fixed in position relative to each other. They appeared to be part of a structure that was in the shape of a very large V and were moving south and appeared to be over or very close to the I-10. The lights were on the leading edge of whatever this was. I remember that there were approximately 10-13 to lights which would appear to extinguish and relight in no particular sequence. Could the lights be some form of propulsion? To say that the object was large is an understatement. It was traveling south approximately 30 degrees above the horizon, moving very slowly and with absolutely no sound. If it was directly over I-10 one mile to the west, it would be in the range of half a mile wide. I followed the vehicle for nearly 15 to 20 minutes as it passed through my field of vision from what would be north by northwest to south by southwest. Using 15 minutes to traverse this roughly 210 degree arc, one mile away equates to an approximate airspeed of 15 to 20 miles per hour. The vehicle was obviously solid in nature. As it passed by, the stars in the field of view were not visible behind the vehicle, or whatever it was. As it passed by, the number of lights still visible was reduced as the starboard leading edge was blocked from view. This only served to further substantiate my opinion that the phenomenon was solid. I was located in an area that had very little ambient light so the stars were clearly visible. It passed from view as it traveled toward Casa Grande 25 miles to the south. It is important to note that the lights I witnessed had nothing to do with the widely reported Phoenix lights that descended behind South Mountain west of my position. I did not observe those lights which have been reported from at least one source that they were a diversion to draw attention from the vehicle that I saw. Name to be withheld, please. So now there's a couple of topic discussions like, um, I don't know, I want to discuss living in a high traffic area like with flights. I think we talked about this briefly before. If you live in a high traffic area for air traffic, you're not going to see a a V-shaped squadron of airplanes and think to yourself, oh my God, it's a big V-shaped airplane flying 100 feet off the ground. You know what I mean? Like,
0: It's something that's going to catch your eye, and there's no doubt about that because you don't see it ever in day-to-day life, you know? It's just, yeah. there's there's no doubt that everybody that's in inside of it is going to see it and it's going to catch everybody's attention. They're going to stop dead in their tracks and take notice real quick. It, and it's going to be, I, if, especially if you think immediately it's a UFO or, or something in that realm. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're not going to forget that for the rest of your life, right? An event like that, it's huge. Yeah. Something that that big in the sky, something that different from what you're uh, used to seeing. Yeah. And from what a lot of these people are saying, too, it was very close to the ground, right? I mean, I mean there, there's some differences. Like like we heard one of those testimonies that uh, they actually did claim that they could see through um, the craft and uh, claim that each light was a separate entity or whatever, whatever you want to call it. They uh-huh. could see the, the stars through. Um, that was the only testimony that we had that had that particular part of it, but the rest of them claimed that it was a solid craft and you couldn't see the lights, the starlight through the the vehicle.
1: Yeah, it, but if you look at, there's so many testimonies. Quite a lot of them report like a translucent look to it. Mm-hmm. That, um, so that like it was a solid craft, but it sort of had a wavery quality. Or when it passed mm-hmm. in front of the stars or the moon, it had. Sort of like a shimmery or water like effect on them.
0: Yeah. Which yeah. is kind
1: of strange. I used to live in a very high traffic area for air traffic, and there was mm-hmm. always an airplane in the sky. And
0: yeah, I, me as well.
1: I can say that Agent ETA has also lived in a very similar area. I saw airplanes anytime where I used to live as growing up as a child until I moved out. Anytime you looked up in the sky, there's an airplane 100% of the time, day, night, whatever. There was airports Mm -hmm. all over the place. And I saw jumbo jets. I saw big airplanes, small airplanes. Sometimes I'd see formations of airplanes. Not that often, but once in a while. There was a group of airplanes called uh, Long Easy. Long Easy is a it's a kind of plane, I think, that you have to build it yourself. I don't think it's a, a production aircraft. It's like a kit plane or something. Yeah. Like a kit plane. But there's a group of these guys that always fly around in a V formation. Well, mm. I say always, you would only see them maybe every couple of months or something. And it looked really mm. weird and it caught your eye, but you never looked up day or night. You'd see them and you never looked up and thought, Oh, that's a UFO. You just thought those are weird looking airplanes. So yeah. when you live in an area with high traffic, like the Phoenix area, I didn't live in Phoenix. I lived in Southern California. But when you live in a high traffic area, you're so used to seeing aircraft in the sky that you don't even notice them. And oh yeah, they have a very particular look. You never look up and think this V formation is only 100 feet off the ground or 200 feet off the ground. You never think mm-hmm. that it's a craft blocking out the skies or something like that.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah. And I lived in Southern California as well. And even on the busiest of days, sometimes you would take notice, especially at night, because the lights on the craft, uh, on the airplanes are just that much more noticeable. Um, on, on the busiest of days or nights, you'd see multiple uh, pathways because in Southern California, you have a, a lot of airports and, and not too uh, widespread around of an area. I mean, you might have like, you know, um, flight pathways that you'll see at all at once coming from or to places like. Ontario or LAX, you know, or, or even coming from Phoenix, you can see those cause you know, they might be going to either one, but, um, even on those busiest of days where you can see multiple flight paths at the same time, because of how many uh, airplanes are uh, traveling those flight paths at the same time. Um, you'll see, you know, the smaller uh, airplanes come into like smaller airports like Brackett airfield and Pomona and stuff uh, at different altitudes. And you will see the much larger, um, aircrafts at higher altitudes and, The speed that they're traveling, the size of them, the lights that are on them are something that is unconsciously embedded into your mind. You're used to it, right? You spent so many years observing these things, either directly or indirectly, as just part of the scenery, even. Right. As soon as you notice something that's out of the norm, you're going to take notice of it, you know, and your eyes are going to be directed right to it, it because... You know, being human, we're curious, right? Yeah, and um, you're gonna know, you're gonna want to know what the heck is that in the sky above, above where I live. You know? Right.
1: Yeah, aircraft they behave a certain way. They only behave a certain way, and once you get used to seeing them, there's. You really cannot misidentify them,
0: Mm -hmm. especially if you're so used to them. Yeah,
1: there's a couple of possible explanations for this sighting. One of the explanations I like the best is that it's some sort of government blimp or dirigible kind of a craft. We know there are records that there are a couple of different versions of this that have been planned. The records on which ones have been built are a little sketchy. It's hard to find. Mm -hmm. But we know that they planned uh, using some kind of blimp as a spy plane, kind of like the Mm SR-71 U-2 kind of a thing. And they've also studied it as like a troop carrier, a troop transport that you could have some sort of cargo bay and you could put like soldiers and tanks in there, like a whole battalion. And I find that interesting because how big would the blimp have to be to carry an entire battalion, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess it would it would deter you know depend on what gases you were using, and I mean I don't this is not something I really fully understand. I mean, but I mean, of course, we all know the the history of zeppelins and and such things, and uh, we also are aware of uh, some of the faults, <laughs> particularly flammability, or is that is that the right word?
1: From what I understand, um, inflammable actually means flammable. Okay, and. So what we say is flammable is actually we got it wrong, I guess. We're using that incorrectly. I oh, don't know.
0: Okay. Would you, would you say he's infamous or infamous?
1: He's infamous. That's like
0: famous. <laughs>
1: Best movie ever. Yes.
0: If you guys don't know what we're uh, referencing, then shame on you.
1: I found a specific project about blimps that I found interesting, not that it could explain the Phoenix Lights, but it's an example of what our government's been up to. Mm-hmm. So in 1964, they had an airship called Silent Joe, and it was designed for operations over Vietnam using infrared and acoustic sensors. Oh, okay. That, that was followed by Silent Joe 2 and Pobol, All, And there's other ones as well, but these are... Some of the easier to find ones on, online if you Google them.
0: You know, I got to be honest, I really like the Silent Joe thing much more than the, uh, the acronym, that pole ball, whatever. You know? Yeah.
1: What, what is they, they didn't whoever their marketing guy, they need to fire the marketing guy for that one.
0: Yeah, they, they could. have. <laughs> obviously, there was some kind of a change there. And uh, whoever was the pole ball guy certainly wasn't as creative. And I do not appreciate him.
1: So one of the follow up ones was the pole ball S in 1974. And you can find the designs for this thing online it's declassified. It was designed to fly at seventy thousand feet and to to put that into like numbers that we might recognize mm-hmm. that's about thirteen miles up in the air. Okay. And it was designed to operate for seven days at a time and it was powered by fuel cells that's how they were able to achieve the seven day uh, the seven day operating time
0: mm-hmm.
1: and the real kicker is. Keep in mind, this is 1974. It was designed to be unmanned. So this is basically a drone mm-hmm, or yeah. unmanned
0: aircraft. Back all the way back in 1974, too. So what the heck do they have now?
1: Yeah. And if you read through the report, which it's it's really long and it's uh, basically the it's a you can find a report on this thing that goes over how they designed it and how they compare different materials. They compare like piston engines versus jet engines and all this stuff Mm. and the pros and cons of each. But if you read the report, there's some pretty interesting statements in there and I'll read some, some excerpts from that report. So here we go. Considerable effort has been expended during the last several years in the development of unmanned high altitude station keeping vehicles Such vehicles are airborne platforms capable of loitering above a specific location or geographic area on the Earth while maintaining a high altitude. These vehicles have applications encompassing military, civil, and scientific uses. Examples of vehicle concepts include drones, RPVs, Flying wings, microwave beamed power vehicles, synchronous stationary satellites, free floating balloons, tethered balloons, and powered balloons. The first serious study of high altitude station keeping powered balloons concept was performed by General Mills during the late 1950s. And that had uh, the specs for that one was 60,000 to 80,000 feet for one to eight hours. So as I'm reading these excerpts, I'd like to keep in mind that these are. Excerpts from classified documents. So this is not stuff that's like from a science fiction book mm-hmm. or stuff that is like kind of made up. It's not this isn't something is that was
0: act- publica- published in a magazine or or something like that. Yeah, this is an
1: actual report. So just pay attention to what this is saying, and if you so, let me just repeat the sentence. For example. Examples of vehicle concepts include drones, RPVs, piloted f- vehicles, flying wings, microwave-beamed power vehicles, synchronous stationary satellites, free-floating balloons, tethered balloons, and powered blo- Just keep in mind, this is in the 70s, 1974. Mm-hmm. So this is really interesting evidence of I mean, what the government might have been up to.
0: The one that caught my attention was microwave-beamed-powered vehicles. Like, what? Yeah. What? Say what now? Yeah
1: yeah, and the the report, this report is not talking about that, but mm. what do they mean by that? Microwave yeah, what, beam power, what does that mean? What <laughs> is
0: that? I, don't, I got no clue.
1: This is not fiction. They're talking about real things here. Uh-huh. the They call these things um, super pressure balloons because when uh, I guess they're talking about the pressure when it gets up to altitude. Mm. here Here's a sentence from the report. Typically, the duration of super pressure balloons is measured in terms of months and several balloons have flown well in excess of 400 days. The report doesn't say but which balloons have flown in excess of 400 days. Are we talking about spy balloons, weather balloons? To me, it's really tantalizing because you're going to have this object flying at a very high altitude for a very long time. Mm. And I can't help but think this might be the source of some UFO sightings from the past.
0: I think it's certainly possible.
1: Yeah, we're talking about some very advanced technology for the times. So the the vehicle in this particular report would have had a length of 371 feet and a volume of about 30,000 cubic meters or about a million cubic feet. So we're talking about something really, really big. And keep Mm -hmm. in mind, this is the 70s. Yeah. and the the way they would launch this vehicle so there's there's a video you can watch about this, this Daredevil guy he took a balloon to the upper atmosphere and then like did a skydive mm-hmm. and if you look at the video when they launched the balloon from the ground it looks like really deflated and floppy mm-hmm. but that's because once you get up to like 70 or 80,000 feet once you get up to like 70 or 80,000 feet the atmospheric pressure is so low that what looks like a tennis ball at the ground pressure, once you get up to that altitude, it expands a lot because of the lack of pressure. They have to give kind of slack in it to get when it gets to atmosphere it get, or when it gets to that high of an altitude, it expands quite a lot. Mm-hmm. So the particular vehicle, the Pobol S, they would have launched it tail first using a tow balloon. And they would do this because it would have like a propeller on the back mm. and they want to protect that. So you'd have this really long 371 foot craft that would look like this sort of deflated floppy silver pickle or something like that uh-huh. that would just be carried up through the atmosphere up into, you know, 70 or 80,000 feet. That's, you know, almost twice what commercial airliners fly at just to, you know, as perspective. Okay. And it would sort of float up there. And it, it rises the whole way in a vertical position. Now, when I when I read this description, I thought that in the 70s, if you saw something like this, you might think UFO because it would probably look really, really weird. If this is what they had in the 70s and they have been designing airships ever since, probably what they have now is a lot more advanced. Documents for the more recent airships are still classified, so it's hard to find out what's been going on the last, you know, 20, 30 years or so. Yeah. So we can only find out what happened a long time ago.
0: Yeah, we can only speculate where it's gone since then.
1: Yeah, but I think that one plausible explanation for the Phoenix sightings is some sort of experimental airship like this that was... So if you look at the descriptions... It flied really low, like, you know, some people say 100 feet off the ground. Some people say 500 feet, but Mm -hmm. whatever. They all say it's very low. They didn't say it was at 30,000 feet or something like what a commercial airliner might fly. Uh Really low to the ground and also traveling really slow, like 10 miles an hour, 30 miles an hour. Airplanes don't fly at 30 miles an hour. They just don't. Yeah. They cannot maintain lift at that. If an airplane is going 30 miles an hour, it falls out of the sky.
0: Yeah, a helicopter could because it provides its own lift.
1: Yeah, but have you ever seen a helicopter in person? Well, yeah. Yeah, they are really, loud. really loud. Yes. Unbelievably loud. Yes, so true. a helicopter 200 feet above you, not only would be incredibly loud, but it would cause you know it would be like a little mini hurricane where you're standing it, it puts oh, yeah. out a lot of air
0: especially that many like if every single one of those lights was a, a separate helicopter because obviously there's no helicopters as big as as what this uh V-shaped formation was uh, to be described as many, right th- that many helicopters would be very very loud you'd hear it all over the entire area of phoenix you know yeah but i mean you know i think one of the the cool things about this uh sighting too this mass sighting is there's actually other instances of mass sightings with V-shaped uh, formations. There's yes. actually there's actually one um, on July 14th, uh, uh, 2001, I believe, in New Jersey. It was over a turnpike. Um, the that event lasted supposedly for about 15 minutes. And it was just after midnight. Um, you know, there's yeah, everybody that was on the turnpike. Obviously, you know, if anybody has, has seen a, a depiction of... of New Jersey or New York traffic, you know, you, you know that there's going to be a bunch of uh, densely packed cars wherever you go, you know, and, and people don't really need to stop. They're already stopped. You know, they'll just put it, they'll put it in a park, but so, you know, all these people on the turnpike uh, for 15 minutes uh, just over uh, after midnight marveled at this sight of a uh, orange and yellow lights in a V formation. Um, and it was a, a just over the, uh, the Arthur kill waterway between uh, Staten Island, New York, and, um, Carteret, Carteret, i sure how you pronounce that new jersey but i mean that that's you know that's that's another uh, and then that's you know somewhat recent as well too you know um 2001 that's not all that long ago right uh, another very densely populated even more densely populated area you know and there there's you know countless people who uh, reported that one as well
1: so i wonder if they were intentionally flying this over assuming it was a government craft, if they were Mm -hmm. flying it over a populated area to test out some kind of stealth technology or something, because, Mm -hmm. you know, like you were saying um, there, if you look at various sightings, there's a lot of sightings throughout the years that have a similar, somewhat similar description. Mm -hmm. And there's, so I was reading about some sort of primitive stealth technology where Basically, they have cameras that look up and project downwards what's above them. Oh yeah. Sort of yeah. like, sort of like a chameleon. So you have mm-hmm. basically you have like a, a TV screen or like a bunch of LEDs or something on the bottom.
0: I remember hearing about a suit that was supposed to do this, like some time ago. Yeah. It was actually some a while back. It was it was years ago.
1: Yeah. So something like this on an airplane might. Explain how so many witnesses described a craft that they thought was a solid craft, and yet it, when it passed in front of stars or the moon, it gave it sort of like a shimmery color or it Mm -hmm. changed the color or something like that. Mm -hmm. Because if you've ever shopped for television, you know that reproducing color accurately can be a little dicey at times. So that that's one thing that's definitely a possibility, I think. But another possibility, of course, is aliens. What do you, what do you think about aliens as a possibility for this sighting agent ETA?
0: Uh, I, I think it's absolutely possible, uh, especially depending on what your de- definition of aliens might be. Uh, I lean more towards it being some kind of government technology, to be honest, Um I don't think that uh, it, to me it wouldn't make sense why aliens would need to hover slowly over uh, a densely populated city w- without contacting like straightforward you know the population like there there mm-hmm. there was no there's no purpose that they were they were there for it seemed you know if it was aliens mm-hmm. you know yeah I don't know I just don't see what they are there for if it was aliens you know I mean they're they're I mean obviously if it was aliens is There's no way I would know what their perspective and their goals are anyways. But knowing what I do know, um, having the perspective that I do have, I I lean towards government because I, I do agree with the notion that I think it's more likely it's some kind of government technology that they were testing, whether they were testing a cloaking ability or... They're mm-hmm. testing, uh, you know, um, the public's reaction to seeing something large in the sky that doesn't make sense. You know, mm-hmm. I think it's one of those two things I could mm-hmm. right. I could be wrong. I'm willing to accept either one. But mm-hmm. in my opinion, I lean towards those two notions right there.
1: Yeah, I think I also tend towards some sort of government craft. I think it's it's possible that it could be aliens because for the ship to be as big big as people described, like half a mile or a mile across. It's kind of stretches the limits of our technology. But on the other hand, if you look at the declassified projects that we know about from, you know, from a really long time ago, those technologies are so advanced that when they came out, they seemed like alien technology. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, I think it's possible that it could be aliens, but I think it's more likely that it was some sort of government craft of some kind, whether that's, you know, an inflated dirigible kind of a thing or an experiment where they're projecting holograms or whatever it is. It's possible to be aliens, but without some sort of hard proof, I think it's more likely to be government stuff. I agree. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps
0: up this episode. Thanks for listening and tune in next time.